The man that lived directly across the street had just done the unimaginable. He had taken his little newborn baby girl and carried her and went downtown. And when he got downtown, he held his little newborn baby girl in one arm and he took his free hand and he kind of arranged a group of little sticks and made them into a pile. And then he took his little newborn baby girl and laid her on top of that pile of sticks. And before anybody knew what he was about to do, he reached inside of his jacket and he pulled out a knife and he thrust it into the heart of his little girl and killed her. And then he took some matches and he set that little pile of twigs on fire and he burned his little girl. And that was the guy that lived directly across the street. The family that lived up the street, um, nobody liked to go near their house. As a matter of fact, when the kids would be out playing and they would come near the house, they would often cross to the other side of the street because they said there was just something eerie and strange about that house, but the adults in the community knew that the people that lived in that house, they, they practiced witchcraft. They did seances, and the, the sense was there was something just kind of evil about that house. And that's the family that lived directly up the street. And all the men in town, they loved to go to worship. And why wouldn't they? Because everybody knew that the most beautiful and sensuous women in town, they worked at the temple as temple prostitutes. And so there was no problem getting the men to go to worship. And all the good and godly people that lived in the community, they just kind of disappeared over the last little while. Well, people knew what had really happened to them because you'd be walking downtown and you'd go near the police station and late at night you would hear the screams of people in the basement of the police station being tortured and killed. And so all the good and godly people had just kind of disappeared from the community. And as you walked around town, almost every street corner would have a, a little statuette. It would be about this tall. And it would be in the shape of something. And it would be, uh, well, as a matter of fact, it would be, it'd be considered not right for you not to even have one of these little statuettes in your house. Whether it be a statuette to Baal or Chemosh or Amaroth. It'd be poor taste for you not to have one of these in your house, too. And so were the days of Elijah 3,000 years ago. The reigning monarch at this particular time is a guy named Ahab, and the Bible describes Ahab as being a king that did more evil than any king before him. And he's married to a total winner. He's married to a girl named Jezebel, whose name even to this point is still synonymous with what's evil. Jezebel, she had been the daughter of the king of Phoenicia, one of the neighboring countries, and we don't know how it happened, probably some type of a trade agreement or something, but the king of Phoenicia had given his daughter Jezebel in marriage to the king of Israel, and now Jezebel is making her journey from Phoenicia, coming over to Israel, and why would she want to leave this beautiful, lush, green, wonderful country called Phoenicia to come to this desert country called Israel? And so if she's coming, by gum, she's going to bring something with her from her home nation. And so she brings with her her god, Baal. And if you looked at Baal, Baal would be the, this individual standing on the top of a bull, a cow. 
And so she brings Baal with her because everybody knows that Baal is responsible for the wonderful fertility that's going on in Phoenicia and the harvest and the rain and all the prosperity. It's all attributable to to Baal. So when, when Jezebel comes from Phoenicia, she brings this little god Baal with her And at this point, 93% of the population of Israel have long since given up the worship of Jehovah. And now they fully embrace that Baal is the God of Israel. But everybody knows this little statuette, that's not really the God Baal. This is just a representation of Baal. Everybody knows at this point that the real Baal, he actually resides on Mount Carmel. That's where Baal really resides. And Elijah's looking around at his nation and he's so distressed in his heart as he sees the nation that he loves going to the hot place in a handbasket. He sees the deterioration morals of his society all around him. And there's something within him that just grieves this. And one day he discovers that God's got this unusual calling on his life that Elijah discovered that even though he comes from this little pipsqueak town on the very furthest edge of Israel, a little town called Tishbe, he discovers that that God has given him the ability to actually hear the voice of God. He can actually hear God speaking. And God is working in him miraculously in signs and wonders and healings. And all kinds of interesting things are happening through this guy named Elisha. And the people in that area of Tishbe are, are rising up and saying, could it be that a prophet of God is really amongst us? Well, God speaks to Elijah one day, and he says, I want you to go, and I want you to have a confrontation with King Ahab, this king that's done more evil than any king before him. I want you to go and deliver a message to him. Are you kidding me, God? To go and confront Ahab, this wicked, murderous king, and his wife Jezebel that takes great pleasure in just slaughtering anybody that that believes in your name. You sure you want me to go? Go. Go to the capital city of Samaria and confront him. So Elijah takes off on his journey. It's 40 to 50 miles, or about 80 kilometers, and he's trudging along, and he's walking. How in the world am I going to get into the king's palace, and how am I going to get the opportunity to have an audience with him and present this message? But somehow or another, when he gets to the palace, the opportunity is made, and he strides into the very throne room of King Ahab. And there's King Ahab with all of the royal household that's there, and all the pomp and ceremony. And, a- and Elijah walks in, and he looks at King Ahab, and he says, God is not happy with Israel, and God is not happy with you. And to prove it, for the next three years, there will be no rain any place in Israel. And with that, he boogies and goes out of there real fast. An unpopular message to a murderous king. Undoubtedly, King Ahab turns to somebody and says, who was this nutcase that was just here? How dare he come in here and, and accuse me of being evil and something about God and, and, a, and a drought lasting for three years? <sighs> that guy's just crazy. Just forget him. But an interesting thing happened. For the rest of that week, no rain in Israel. No big deal. It's a desert country. There's lots of weeks where there's no rain. Two weeks go by, no rain in Israel. Not unusual. Three weeks go by, no rain. Four weeks go by, no rain. Two months go by, no rain. You'd be outside and you'd go for a walk across the lawn instead of the of your feet over top of the blades of grass. Now you're hearing crunch, crunch, crunch because the, oh, the, the grass is just kind of drying up and it's getting dusty and there's a lot of dust in the air. Two months without rain. 
When was the last time it rained around here? I don't know. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. It's rained around here. Three months go by. No rain any place in Israel. The crops that should be up to here with the corn are down about here, and they're all dry, and they're brown. And, and It's kind of a pitiful harvest this year, don't you think? Yeah, I haven't seen a harvest like this in a long time. You know, it's just terrible. To, man, we're not going to hardly get anything of a harvest this year. Four months go by. No rain. The water levels in the, in the wells are starting to go down. When was the last time we saw water levels that low? I don't know. It's been a long time. We're really in serious trouble here. The reservoirs are getting low, and, and the little streams that used to have lots of water in them, they're just little trickling things now. And, and the city councils begin to meet, and they say, you know, the reservoirs in the town's water supply are really getting down here. Well, we need to preserve some water around here. I know what we're going to do. Let's do this. If you live in an even house number, you can water your house and lawn on, on the even numbers of the week. And, and if you're living in an odd number house, then you can water your lawn on the odd number days of the week. And, and we just got to kind of preserve our water around here. Things are getting a bit serious. And six months go by, and there's no rain. And now, the cattle out in the, out in the fields that have no grass to eat, they're, they're, they're getting really scrawny and they're getting sickly and the elderly people are going further and further and further to find water because the local wells are beginning to dry up and the little streams are, are drying up and they're just mud trails now. And the little kids that, that you would normally pat down with the cool water when they get sick, there's no water to pat them down. And so they're getting sicker and sicker and elderly people are beginning to die and there, there's hardly any harvest this year. And so the king orders that all of the, 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 the bins where the, the national food stores are, are, are stored, we need to open them up and provide food for the people. And let's, let's send out some people with the camels and with the big barrels and bring in water from further and further afield because we, we've got a serious problem. It's been six months without rain around here, you know. And a year goes by, and two years go by, and now there's massive death all over the place. People are dying. There's no water. The, the elderly people can't get to the, the wells that, that they would normally access. Now they've got to walk like 10 miles to get to, to where water is, and the streams are all dried up, and the cattle and the sheep and the goats are dying in the fields, and it's terrible. Massive death going on. Two and a half years of drought. The harvest didn't even happen the second year. There was no harvest the third year. I mean, this is national crisis, and King Ahab is beside himself. Oh, who was that guy that was in here like three years ago? He, he's the troubler of Israel. He's the one that's causing all this problem. He's brought this drought upon us. Send out the secret service. Send out the army. Find that guy. Bring that guy to me. There's a price on this guy's head. Find him and bring him to me. And the secret police are looking every place. And Elijah's in hiding. And they can't find Elijah any place. And death and destruction. Three years go by. Massive death going on. And then God speaks to Elijah again. Elijah, go back and speak to Ahab again. You have got to be kidding God. Everybody's looking for me. There's a price on my head. If he even sees me, I'll be killed on the spot. Go back and speak to him. Tell him the drought is about to end. And so God gets Elijah and Ahab back in the same vicinity, and he shouts out, and he says, Ahab! Is that you, troubler of Israel? Elijah, is that you? Elijah says back to him, God's about to bring an end to the drought. But before he does, as a condition of God bringing an end to the drought, you have to assemble on Mount Carmel 
with all the prophets of Baal and gather all the people of Israel. And if you will do that, God will bring an end to the drought. And Elijah boogies off. And on the appointed day, word has gone out. And the scripture says that the people of Israel gathered on Mount Carmel. Probably hundreds of thousands of people are there. We were there last year with the tour of Israel. We're on Mount Carmel. We're at the very place. Hundreds of thousands of people are there. King Ahab is there. His court is there. 450 prophets of Baal are there. And Elijah strides onto the scene, sees the king, sees the royal household, sees the 450 prophets of Baal, and doesn't even talk to them. So says 1 Kings chapter 18. He turns to the Jewish people, the hundreds of thousands of people that have gathered there. How long will you halter between two opinions? If God is God, then worship him. And if Baal is God, then worship him. And do you know what the scripture says the people did? It said they were silent. Hundreds of thousands of people standing there in silence. And Elijah looks down. There's the guy right there that had just offered his little baby girl as a sacrifice and burned her to the prophet Baal, trying to get the harvest to come again. He looks over there. There's a group of the men that have been at the temple prostitutes, and they've been doing their acts of worship, trying to get the, there to be rain in this place. He looks at, over there. There's the secret police writing down the names of all the people that are gathered there. He looks over there, and there's the, the family that's into witchcraft and seances and stuff. He looks out at all these people, and they're just standing there. The Bible says, in silence, looking at him. So Elijah ups the ante, and he says, how about this? How about we build two altars, one to Jehovah God and one to Baal, and whichever God answers with fire, would you serve that God? And this time the scripture says exactly what the people said. Hundreds of thousands of people answer it with one voice and they go, what you said is good. We'd worship a God that answers with fire. So Elijah now turns to the 450 prophets of Baal. He says, you guys go first. 450 prophets of Baal with the king standing there and all the king's household standing there, and they're going to build an altar. The scripture doesn't describe it, but in your imagination, what would 450 guys do on Mount Carmel, where Baal resides, in the presence of the king, in this huge audience, are they going to build some pipsqueak little uh, 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 altar? I don't think so. Undoubtedly, they build this monstrosity of this altar. And they pile the wood on top, and they go find the scrawny cow, and they put it on top, and they kill it. And now they begin to plead with Baal to answer. We're right here where Baal is. Oh, Baal, 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 we love you, Baal. Answer with fire, Baal. And they sing their songs. Our Baal, who art Mount Carmel, hallowed be thy name. And they recite their creeds, and they pray, and we believe. Come on, God. You can do it, Baal. Baal, answer with, answer with fire. And they, they get out their books, and they read their creeds, and they do their prayers. And, they, and Elijah's watching. Maybe your God is asleep. Cry out louder. And so they ramp this thing up and they go get spears and, they, and swords and they're cutting themselves and they're sincere and blood is we believe these guys are sincere they're passionate they're engaged and you know what happens 
Nothing happens. Do you know why nothing happens? Because there is no God Baal. There's nobody to answer. And after the whole day goes by, Elijah says, guys, give it a rest. Paraphrase. Give it a rest, guys. It's my turn. And this time the scripture does say what happens. It says that Elijah went and he took 12 stones. I figure Elijah's about my size. I don't know. Say he's my size. How big of a stone can I carry? I figure I can carry a stone about this big, right? 12 stones. Boom, 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 four. Boom, 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 eight. Boom, 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 12. This thing can't be any higher than about this tall. It's 12 stones. That's all it is. He gets some twigs. He puts the twigs on top. He digs a trench around the outside. He gets a cow. He lays it on. He goes off to the side. And he prays an itty, bitty, tiny prayer. You can pray this prayer in less than 30 seconds. He prays an itty, bitty, tiny prayer. Fire falls from heaven, burns up the cow, burns up the sticks, melts the rock like lava, evaporates the water around the outside. The thousands of people are going, whoa, did you just see what happened? And instantly, the scripture says, hundreds of thousands of people fell on their faces and cried out with one voice, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And instantaneously, national revival happened in a moment's notice, just like that. And I'm looking at this story, and I'm going, how did that happen? How did that happen? Was this Elijah's idea that for three years there would be no rain, that, that there would be this confrontation on, on Mount Carmel and the fire would fall? Is this Elijah's idea? Listen to the prayer that Elijah prayed, this itty-bitty tiny prayer in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Listen to his prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and have done all of these things at your command. This whole thing the three-year famine and drought, the whole thing about the confrontation with the prophet of Baal and the fire falling from heaven and all that kind of stuff, this is entirely God's idea. And all Elijah did is he heard what God wanted to do, aligned himself with what God wanted to do, and an entire nation gets saved, just like that. And I'm sitting here, wait a sec. I've seen this before someplace. That somebody heard the voice of God and heeded the voice of God, and people get saved? How about Philip in the New Testament? Heard the voice of God, 
Philip goes south to the road that leads to Gaza, heard the voice of God, he obeyed and heeded it. As a result, the Ethiopian and the entire nation came to believe in God. Ananias heard the voice of God. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. Heard the voice of God, heeded the voice of God. As a result, Saul is converted. Peter, go to Cornelius' house. As a result of hearing the voice of God and heeding the voice of God, an entire family and community is saved. The apostles heard the voice of God, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them. As a result, the entire Mediterranean seacoast is evangelized. Paul, heard the voice of God. Go to Macedonia. Lydia and her family get saved. Paul, go to Jerusalem. Heard the voice of God. Heeded the voice of God. Kings and princes and Caesar all came to hear the gospel message. So I ask us this morning, who amongst us doesn't want to see revival? And what would it take that revival would actually take place? I'd like to suggest to you this morning that revival takes place when people are hearing the voice of God and they're heeding the voice of God, God still speaks today. And when God speaks and his people hear and they align themselves with what God is saying to do, that's the context in which revival can take place. When people hear and heed the voice of God, when that happens, God works miraculously in their midst to accomplish things that cannot be accomplished through human effort. Did the nation of Israel get saved because of preaching? The truth of the matter is, in the entire account of 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is only recorded as saying 199 words total. Revival did not take place because of preaching. Revival did not take place because they got creative in their evangelism efforts. They didn't get bouncy houses, and they didn't build better facilities, and they didn't get a better worship team, and they didn't do better at this, more creative than this, and bring in a, in a gospel quartet, and they didn't do a better job of advertising. The reason the nation of Israel was converted in mass is because God showed up in power. And when God shows up in power, all of a sudden the apathy and indifference of people just go way out the door and they say, the Lord is God. We just saw evidence that there is a God in Israel and it's not Baal. We were trying to get Baal to help us out by offering our sacrifices and going to the temple for worship and doing all the stuff that was part of our system. But we're abandoning that and we're saying God is God in Israel and I will follow him. He shows up in power because Elijah heard, heard and heeded the voice of God. Am I against creativity and preaching and buildings? No, of course not. Good grief, I teach that stuff here at the school. I'm not against preaching. I, I preach. But I'm here to tell you, preaching will not convert people. There are times where the normal expressions of God's love and mercy and grace are not enough. There are times that it takes an extraordinary expression of the love and mercy and grace of God to break through the apathy and indifference of people. God still speaks today. I'm absolutely convinced of it. You say, Steve, why are you so wound up about this stuff? I'll tell you why I'm wound up about it, because I've got unsaved family members that I want to see saved. And I care about whether this community gets saved, and I care about the communities that you're going to go and minister to, about whether they get saved. And I'm here to tell you, for all of our creativity and all of our energy, it is not enough. We need a demonstration of the power and presence of God to break through the apathy and indifference of our society. 
And it will only happen if we're people who hear and heed the voice of God. God still speaks today. Some of you heard me tell this story. I was at the church office one day, and I was just having my devotions. I wasn't doing anything unusual. Regular day, I'm sitting at my desk having my devotions, and just like that, God spoke to me. Thursday, 1 o'clock, go to this location. This person will be there. Tell them this message. It was so clear, I wrote it right into my daytimer. Thursday, 1 o'clock, this person, that location, this is what God wants me to tell the person. Thursday at 12.30, I got in my car and began to drive to the location God told me to go to. It was that week. When I get to the location where God told me to go to, when I arrive there, oh my goodness, the guy's car is sitting right there. Now I'm really scared. I go in. He says, Pastor Steve, what are you doing here? I says, God sent me here with a message for you. And his exact words were, yeah, right. And I reached inside my coat, and I pulled out my day timer, and I put it in front of him, and I opened up to Thursday, and I said, Thursday, 1 o'clock, you, in this location, God has a message for you. Here's what you would not know if I didn't tell you. He shouldn't have been there Thursday at 1 o'clock. I know this guy really well. He worked on the far side of Ottawa. He should not have been where he was Thursday at 1 o'clock. How did I know he would be there? Quinky dink? I don't think so. God still speaks today. I don't hear the voice of God very often. I don't want to come across as super spiritual. But I believe there's some people in this room that God wants to speak to. And he wants you to obey him. And if you'll obey him, he'll show up with power. We're in the season between the ascension of Jesus and before the fall of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The season of waiting. And what did Jesus say? Why were they to wait? He said, stay in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Jesus knew that the church could never accomplish the mission of the church without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And when we try and do mission, apart from his presence... We're fighting a fool's battle. Fathers, we bow before you. We see in 1 Kings chapter 18 that in a moment, an entire nation was brought under the influence of your Holy Spirit when the fire fell. And the nation as a whole cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And for our loved ones, our brothers and sisters and our aunts and uncles and cousins, our best friends, people we went to school with, our teammates, the people that live in this community, the people that live in our hometowns, 
for our province or our state, for our nation, what would bring revival of a national level? It's not going to be because we build nicer church buildings or we learn to preach better or we get better with our PA systems or we have dance recitals and we bring in this, that, and the other thing. Forgive us for trying to accomplish the mission apart from the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. We need to be touched again, just like those people in the upper room were touched by your Holy Spirit. And they went out like gangbusters. And they saw the entire Mediterranean seacoast one to faith because you were empowering them with a demonstration of your presence and power. They were holy in heart. They had a message that they proclaimed clearly. They heard you say, stay in Jerusalem. They heeded it. And then you showed up in power. We need to be touched again, Lord, by your spirit, just like the first church was touched. But would you do it again in our generation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old song that um, I learned probably in like the 1980s. And uh, if this song resonates with you and you want to come and have a time of prayer at the altars, you're most welcome to. We need wisdom, we need power, and true love for each other. We've had so many big but empty words. So we come before your face, asking for your grace. Bring your people to a state of kingdom life. Restore your church again. Touch your people once again. With your precious holy Let your kingdom shine upon this earth Through a living, glorious church Not for temporary deeds But to restore authority and power Let a mighty rushing wind your people once again. Lord, you see your tired servants, the broken wounded soldiers. Oh, how much we need your precious healing hand. We need the power of the cross as the only source for us. When we stand up facing final battle cry, restore your church again. Touch your people once again. With your precious holy hand, we pray, let your kingdom shine upon this earth through your living glorious church. to restore authority and power. Let a mighty
mighty rushing wind blowing. Touch your people once once again we're in the season of waiting when you told the disciples don't leave Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high but after I touch you and I send your Holy Spirit you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world and you kept your word we're thankful, Father, that the disciples heard what you said and they did what you said. And then you showed up and you did what they could not do on their own. So we pray, Father, that in our generation, we would again see a revival take place. That our unsaved brothers and sisters and moms and dads and grandparents, our best friends, people that we know and work with, what would break their apathy and indifference towards you? We know, Father, they don't care where our churches are. They'd actually prefer that a Walmart was there. But when you show up in power, people take notice. It tends to build instantaneous faith and bring people to repentance. Brings people that are skeptical about the things of God to a realization that God exists. The Lord is Israel. The Lord of Israel is real. So do your work again in our generation. May we be people that hear and heed. In Jesus' name.